Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Yep, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. But notice what three verse 3 says, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps. When they wait for my soul, shall they escape by iniquity? Question mark. In thine anger, cast down the people, O God. Thou tellest my wonderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Say that with me. God is for me. In God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid. Here he says it again. What man can do unto me? Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the presence and the power that accompanies this written word. Lord, minister, Lord, to our hearts today. Open our eyes, our ears, our understanding, our minds as we search your word and to apply it to our lives. Flesh it out this very week. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. All God's children say amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Hallelujah. I want to share this thought, directions in the darkness. Directions in the darkness. July the 17th, 1999, some of you may recall this, 38-year-old John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the 35th president, he made headlines, and it was not for good good reasons. Uh, The night before, he was piloting his single-engine airplane going from New Jersey to the island uh, known as Martha's Vineyard, and with him was his wife, Carolyn, and his sister-in-law, Lauren. And uh, Kennedy had logged, I believe they said around 310 hours of flight time, but had only completed half of an instrument training course. Um, the resource that I read stated that he was overconfident in his ability to fly at night, although he had done it a few times before. However, on this particular night, there was no uh, moon Uh, light because fog, it was very foggy, fog had uh, obscured the shoreline of the island too, they said, blocking out any any lights that he could use for direction. And um, anybody that's flown or piloted aircraft knows that the motion of an airplane can fool the senses, uh, especially when everything is is, uh, completely dark around you, but but the instrument panel, that's where the instrument panel is so important. Um, 
the instrument panel reveals whether the plane is is level or banking or climbing or descending. And if the pilot trusts his instruments, uh, he won't go wrong. However, one author wrote, he said, if he trusts himself rather than the instrument panel, he can take his plane into what's called the graveyard spiral uh, and obviously crash. And from the investigation that uh, would follow, they said radar showed the plane was right on course, heading for the airstrip on Martha's Vineyard. However, at 20 miles out, uh, the plane began turning away from the airstrip, and it began descending, and within minutes, it crashed into the Atlantic Ocean, 16 miles from Martha's Vineyard. According to investigators, Kennedy had lost his sense of direction and equilibrium. He either, they said, ignored or he misunderstood his instrument panel. Okay? And his plane was equipped with an autopilot that would have returned the plane uh, to straight and level flight if it had been switched on. Evidently, in the panic and the confusion of those final moments, uh, he never switched the autopilot switch on. And I thought as I read that, and as I have kind of hung out in the book of Psalms this week, I think the psalmist David is surrounded by darkness in this psalm. It's a difficult, even life-threatening circumstance. And this psalm was eventually, we know, put to music. It became a song, uh, and really, historians tell us it became a classic uh, for those that need direction in their darkness. How many know every one of us has experienced the flight that David's taking in this psalm? It's a flight in the dark, and the truths of this psalm should really be, be become part of of the instrument panel. That's how I want you to think about it. The instrument panel of every believer uh, should have three, at least three gauges, and that's the three points I want to talk about this morning. I'll get to it in a minute. But before we get to the point, I, I want us to look at the introduction. So, so we read the text, but I want you to go above the text. You got your Bibles open? Go above the text because... In the small print, just above verse 1, we have some informative words of explanation. And this is what they call the subscription, okay? And in my Bible, it says, to the chief musician. That's the choir director, okay, of the temple at that time. But let me give you a few words about this subscription. Several hundred years before the birth of Christ, Jewish scholars wrote these notations uh, before all the Psalms. It was not a part, obviously, of the original text, but its purpose was to help the reader. Its purpose was to help the student of Scripture understand the framework and the context of the Psalm that is being passed down through the generations. Because how many know, if you know the backstory, things can become a whole lot more meaningful, right? 
And this particular psalm, the backstory or the framework, is that it is placed at the time when the Philistines detained David in Gath. Okay? You can read all about that dangerous, difficult event over in 1 Samuel 21. But let me give you a quick review because I think it's needful. David, if you recall, is running for his life. And this is before he's gathered a personal entourage of of friends, soldiers, who would later become known uh, as some of his mighty men, okay? This, at this point, he's solo, okay? He's running for his life from King Saul, who Saul wanted to kill him because he perceived him a threat to the throne, okay? And David was thinking that the last place on the planet that King Saul would ever come looking for him would be in the hometown of a giant named Goliath, the giant that David had killed just some time earlier. Follow me? And so to make it even more ironic and dangerous for David, a few days before he ran to Gath, he's gone to the village of Nob, where a priestly establishment was located, and David comes, and if you recall the story, he asks the priest at Nob, he's like, um, I had to run, I'm on the run, I didn't have time to grab a weapon, do you have any weapons here? And the priest said, the only weapon we have is what? The sword of Goliath. It had previously been given, no doubt, as an offering of praise to the power of God. And so the priest gives David the sword of Goliath. So David now arrives in the hometown of Goliath carrying basically the murder weapon. Okay? And you can imagine the Philistines immediately plan to kill him. You know how the story plays out? David comes before the king of Gath. He acts like he's insane and lost his mind. And the king's like, I don't want anything to do with this nut. Get him out of here. And that allows David to escape. One Old Testament scholar said that David's flight to the city of Gath was proof of his despair. He was at a very low point in his life. He had lost his spiritual equilibrium. And he was ignoring the instrument panel of God's promise, and he was starting to spiral downward as well. And uh, had not God intervened, he would have headed for he would have had a crash. But however, God rescues David, and in the process teaches him valuable lessons about faith and about fear. Say it with me: faith and fear. Okay, so David writes this song, and according to this subscription, the nation does not want to lose this song the nation of Israel. So they give this song to the choir master, okay? And if you study biblical history, the choir master had a special place in the temple, kind of like we would think of it as a safe. But they would use it to place articles and instruments and musical pieces that they wanted to be kept safe. In other words, This subscription tells us, make sure this psalm gets put to music and is kept safe, okay? Next, notice it says it's a mictum of David. 
In fact, this is one of five psalms that are identified as mictums of David. Now, the word mictum literally means to cut into stone or engrave. So in other words, this is a psalm that you want to engrave or cut into stone. In other words, you don't want to ever lose its message, right? We would say, set it in stone. And so for many reasons, this psalm becomes the instrument panel for every believer that from David's generation to ours. Now, this psalm shows us how to fly level and straight when the darkness of fear demands nothing less than active faith in the Word of God. Now, I know, having spent all that time on the subscription, before we even get to verse 1, you're starting to wonder. But I'm going to try to just draw a few things from these points. And then we'll close. So David writes in verse 1, you got it? Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighteth a daily and oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. And now notice verse 3, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Say that with me. What time... I am afraid. I will trust. I don't know about you, but I love, I love the realism of that admission. Don't you? I love it. In other words, David is saying, I am outnumbered. I'm not going to make it out of here alive. He's in Gath, Gath's hometown. Okay? How many know he has right to be afraid? And the way he's talking, he ought to know nobody's going to invite him to, to testify because you don't get to testify if you talk like that. Hello. You should be saying, because I trust in the Lord, I'll never be afraid. If you skip down verse 4, part B, he adds something good. He says, in God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. I believe he's probably clenching his teeth and saying, I shall not, I will not be afraid. I am, but I'm not going to be. Hmm? What David is effectively teaching us through his experience is that faith does not always eliminate fear. In fact, faith is perhaps most clearly seen when you act in faith while in the midst of fear or fearful circumstance. See, how many's found out in life trust does not eliminate trouble? I said trust does not eliminate trouble. Who among us trusts God more? Is it the one who trusts him when the sun is, is shining or the one who trusts him in the dark and the fog of circumstances when, when the shoreline of our destination is hidden? See, faith does not mean the absence of fear. David admits his fear. And he speaks further with realism. Notice the last line of verse 4. What can flesh do to me? 
Now, you might think David wants us all to shout and say, hey, David, they can't do anything to you, so go ahead and praise God. Not quite, because David goes on for two verses and tell us, tells us what man or flesh can do to him. Verse 5, he says, every day they rest my words. That means they distort my words. They misrepresent me by twisting my words. Verse, uh, the latter part of verse 5, all their thoughts are against me and are for evil. In other words, they make it clear that they wish I were dead. Look at verse 6. They gather themselves together, they hide themselves, and they mark my steps when they wait for my soul. So he's saying they attack, they constantly intimidate me, they, they malign me with their words, and he, he says they lurk, they watch for my steps. And in other words, in the Hebrew, lurk means dog my heels. It actually can be translated to pant after, like a dog on a hunt. David says, I just can't seem to lose them. They're chasing me. So what do you do when you feel this, when this happens to you? Well, this is where we need to check our instrument panel for directions, for guidance, for some oversight, right? And David gives us what I want to call three principles from the inspired instrument panel of God's Word. So I want to give you three principles that become his source of hope, encouragement, and direction. And how many know they can become ours as well? Are you up for that? Real quick, principle gauge number one is this point. God's word is consistently appropriate for every trouble. You need to remember that. God's word is consistently appropriate for every trouble. Notice how often David finds confidence in the word of God. Verse 4, in God will I praise his word. Look down at verse 10, in God will I praise his word. Then the next line, in the Lord will I praise his word. Three times right there. Now keep in mind, oh, you got to understand this, church. David didn't have a Thomas Nelson right? He didn't have your Thompson chain. He didn't have your uh, Jimmy Swaggart study Bible. Hmm? All he had at his disposal was what was committed to memory, the scriptures that he had memorized as a little Jewish boy, which they memorized the Torah or the Torah. The Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament. Possibly, some say, he may have had a few passages from Joshua and Judges, but, but can't promise that. So when David talks about how God's word brings him such delight and he praises it, keep in mind, he doesn't have 66 books. Amen. He does not even have the Gideon's New Testament pocket edition. Huh? With Psalms and Proverbs. No, he's writing the Psalms. 
He's got Genesis, Exodus, very informative books, but then he's got Leviticus. Oh. You can't hardly make it through in your annual Bible reading chart, right? I'm not saying it's not important. It's important. It's in there for a reason. And, and whole churches have actually been built. I know one pastor built his church teaching out of the book of Leviticus. God bless him. Some books you can hardly make it through. But it's these books, these first handful of books. And he says they're so sufficient. They help me understand the power of God. The grace of God. The justice of God. The holiness of God. The atonement and sacrifice. And the faithful covenant of God for his people. All in the first five books. If David could find in those five books what he needed to trust in the providence and wisdom of God. Listen, folks, we have a whole lot more. I trust you've found that to be true. And when the lights have been turned out, and when you are alone, and when the pressures are, uh, is unbearable, and the pain is becoming so numbing, listen, is there anything so constant and consistent and encouraging as this book right here? God's Word is consistently applicable to every season, every situation of our life. We must quit running. Church, when is our generation going to quit running to every new book that hits the bestseller list in hopes of finding answers to their lives? Listen, when the best answers to life's questions have already been printed right between the covers of this book right here. we got to remember that. Recently, I read several years ago, of a, a, a very hungry Siberian fisherman who left his village in Siberia to look for food. As he walked along, he prayed. He said he prayed to any God that would hear him. He prayed and he asked for a sign that his prayer had been heard. And they said as he just finished praying that prayer, a Bible fell from the sky, true story, and landed near him. He picked it up, went back into town, said, I just prayed a prayer. said, this book fell from the sky. He read the Bible, and today is part of a church in his village now with several Christians. But what that villager did not know is that a helicopter had flown overhead the day he got that sign and in that helicopter were two government officials bringing relief aid into those needy areas. And as they flew, those two officials who were responsible for, for providing it were sorting through the cargo in the helicopter. And one said to the other, now all these cans of food, they were processing the cans of food. They said, they're good. They're what we need to give out. But he said, what is these books? And it was, a, it was Gideon's Bibles by the Gideons. And they said, we don't need these. And they tossed them out of the helicopter. I said, that's a miracle. He got his sign. Why? Because how many know God's word is consistently appropriate for every trouble? That needs to become a gauge on our instrument panel of life, okay? Principle gauge number two. 
God is consciously aware of every trail. Now, I'm using the word trail instead of trial because that's exactly what David writes. Notice the first phrase of verse 6. I love the statement. Thou, he's speaking of God, thou tellest my wanderings. The Hebrew text refers to the wandering trail of someone who has experienced rejection and deep grief. And the last phrase of verse 8 refers to a book where God keeps all of our wanderings written down. It's kind of like what we would call a journal. And this is deeply personal language that tells us without any question, how many know God is not some distant sovereign who maps everything out and then expects us to stay on task? No, he keeps a close watch. A journal account, so to speak, of every step we take and even what we might describe as wandering. David says, God tracks every one of our steps. He has saw me. David realized God saw me every step I took into Goliath's hometown of Gath. Now, how many is familiar with that syndicated comic panel, Family Circus? Anybody? Yeah, you've read it. It's in your paper probably. Just the name, Family Circus, reminds us that our family is not the only dysfunctional family in the neighborhood. It's uh, appeared in newspapers across the nation for over 60 years. It's been compiled in whole books and sold millions and millions of copies. However, some of the cartoon panels are of little Billy. Remember little Billy? Being sent out by his mother to pick something up from the corner market. And so little Billy leaves the house, and then his trail in the comic is made up of dotted lines. Remember that? Dotted lines. And they wind all through the neighborhood. Why? Because Billy's known to get distracted. Right? I mean, the dotted trail goes up and down a tree, over a fence, stops and pets a dog. Over here, he kicks a cat. No, I just hit, can't make that up. He runs through the park. He hops on a swing. He watches men working in the street, at the street corner. Those dotted lines zig and they zag everywhere until he finally comes back home and tells his mom he's completely forgotten what he was supposed to do. Right? Newsflash, unlike Billy's mom, God knows everything about our wondering. He knows everything about our distraction. He knows everything about our weakness. God knows everything about us, and he is infinitely aware of every dot of our dotted and distracted path. And he's aware of every twist and turn in our wandering trail. And how many know he's not missed a step along the way? Because he's consciously aware of our trail. That needs to be one of our gauges in our life's instrument panel. You ever been there where you said, God, do you even know where I'm at? Oh, yeah, he does. He knew David was in Goliath's hometown. Principal gauge number three, final one. God is compassionately attentive 
to every tear. So he knows, remember? He knows our trouble. He knows our trail. And thirdly, he knows our tears. Notice verse 8. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Is this okay? Now, it was not until I studied this topic in Bible customs class, and then when I traveled to Israel, I discovered the ancient practice there also, more clearly, of, of tear bottles. In the ancient days, when uh, even up into the times of the Roman Empire, people kept these little delicate uh, containers to catch and to store their tears. In the Hebrew culture, they were made oftentimes out of little clay bottles, Roman world. They made them out of glass. Uh, it's, it's a simple uh, vase-like uh, creation with an opening at the top that's quite wide and that has this long neck. I should have found a picture and put it on the screen, but hopefully I, I can paint one in your minds. Um, but what they would do is when they would, when they would weep, they would try to catch the falling tears. It was normal at a funeral procession in Roman times even, they say, for friends to bring their tear bottles. And when they would weep, they would catch their tears in these miniature little delicate bottles, and then they would place them at the graveside of the deceased one as a token of their sorrow. It was, they said, common in the Roman era. The wives of Roman soldiers would collect their tears while their husband was out to war and then give their husband, once he returned from war, this brimming tear bottle to show how much they missed him. In fact, they uncovered accounts of marital unrest because the tear bottle was empty when they returned. Hello. And so tear bottles became companions to people in grief. They would take solace in the fact that their tears were not wasted or lost. But however, here's the interesting point, okay, that David makes. He says God is the one holding that tear bottle to your cheek. He's collecting our tears. In other words, God doesn't miss a single tear that you shed. Tears of sorrow, tears of repentance, Tears of anguish, tears of confusion, tears of fear or panic or of hurt or rejection. God is so deeply interested in our trouble and in our trail and in our tears that he's keeping all of them in mind. By the way, one of the promises of heaven means, uh, remember in Revelation 21 and 4, it says God shall wipe away all tears. See, tears of sorrow and suffering and sadness and loss and pain, none of those are going to be in heaven, right? Tear bottles are going to be a thing of the past. But in the meantime, get this, David is giving us a picture of a God who effectively stoops down from glory and collects our tears. Listen, loved one, you never have and never will ever cry alone. We need this memo posted as a little reminder on the dashboard of our lives because it will encourage us in the dark times. God sees it. Right? Yeah. 
And he has, David now is shifting his perspective. And you read through this chapter, you'll find he shifted his perspective from what people are saying about him to now what God has said about him. Praise God. And I love that part where he says, God is for me. He's surrounded by the Philistines in Gath, but God is for him. This is a statement of faith when he's fearful, when he's afraid. He basically says in verse 13, this I know, God's for me. He's for my good. He's for my future. He's for my redemption. He's for my eternal fellowship with him. Listen, he's not against me. Don't tell somebody, he's not against you. He is for you. And notice again the refrain of verse 11. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Notice now, no more list of things man can do to him because, listen, what man is doing to him is nothing in comparison with what God is doing with him and has planned for him. <laughs> oh, somebody ought to raise your hands. David has just realized this is some things he needs to make in his life across the, the uh, I call it the instrument panel. See, the enemy says God doesn't know about your problems. He's lost sight of your dotted line. It's zigged and zagged way too much. But David says, oh no, he's not lost sight of you. Listen, he's recording every wandering step in his journal. And the enemy will say, all right, God knows, but he really doesn't care. But once again, David says, oh no, God cares because he's collecting every one of my tears. I've never cried alone, no matter what our senses might say. This is what we need to realize. God knows, God cares, and if God be for us, who can be against us? Oh, somebody say, if God be for us, who can be against us? This Jones, you can come. I'm going I'm to close. So David realizes you don't have to fear. Because fear, the kind of fear that the Bible warns against, how many know it never looks good on us? It's like a, it's like a perpetually out-of-style haircut. Hey, know what I'm talking about? You can't dress that up. Fear never drives us in the right direction. It is perhaps one of the most dangerous reasons to do anything. Fear dishonors God. It disheartens us. No wonder David has so much to say about it through the psalm. And Psalm 56 is one of the best pillows on which to lay your head when your heart is tempted to fear. you got to remember, God is on my side. Somebody say, God is on my side. These words can create more faith and generate really more powerful demonstrations of God at work in the future. It is one thing to believe something, but how many know... When you really believe it and then you begin to live it, somebody say, watch out, devil. Hello. I say, watch out, devil. I was reading this week about a man that was desperate for money. He decided to rob a bank. He had never done anything like that before. He was extremely nervous, and he enters the bank, and, and he meant to say, talking to the clerk, he meant to say, don't mess with me, lady. This is a stick-up. And he's nervous, and he gets his words all turned around, and he says, 
don't stick with me, lady. This is a mess up. Well, that was a mess up, all right. And the reason he confused his words was the presence of fear. And in his case, he needed to be afraid. Actually, fear can mess up our lives, even in the normal process of living. Listen, that's why God invites us to live free of fear when he says, I'm for you. Praise God. As we stand together, hallelujah. They say a large old Bible frequently used by Abraham Lincoln during the critical years of the Civil War, they said if you was to take it, it automatically falls open to Psalm 34. It's creased. It's worn. And they say there's a smudge on the passage in Psalm 34. But they say it's apparent that the president had often placed his finger on that very verse. And it's the verse that says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all of my fears. Listen, friends, have you done that today? Have you done that today? Have you sought the Lord and found that he delivers from all your fears? Is that all right? I feel someone in this service is dealing with some dark times. Fear is keeping you from acting in faith. And here's what I want to say. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you can leave this service with victory over the fear when you realize these three things that David reminds us. God is aware of our trouble our trail, and our tears. Father, here this morning, I don't necessarily know who you're talking to, but I'm asking you to come this morning and minister by your Spirit. I'm asking you to minister in the hearts of those that need rest from their weary fear. God, their minds have been plagued. Their hearts have been stricken. And their bodies are weary. God, you told us a few moments ago by way of the gift of tongues and interpretation that you're here to meet any need that we might have. God, I pray that we take that to heart and we act on it. God, help somebody to act on that this morning. Lord, they've heard it a million times perhaps. They've sat in their pew, they've come, they've enjoyed worship, and then they've turned and left, but they've taken their fear with them. God, help them to leave their fear in the hands of God this morning. In Jesus' name, all God's people say amen. These altars are open. God bless you as you come. I know that you are for me. I know that you are for me. I know that you will never forsake me in my weakness. And I know that you have come now, even if to ride upon my heart.